Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. We are a bigoted country. It made me sick to my stomach. This is an open and shut murder case. This whole thing was horrific. Horrible. I think you're going to see more of these kinds of unbelievable cases. I'm Darren Karp, and this is Killer Questions. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a few very recent cases that will help us get all the ins and outs of the very controversial gay or trans panic line of defense in America's courts. And I can't think of a better person to be talking to about this than Dr. Karsten Andreessen. Dr. Andreessen is one of the country's leading experts on these types of cases. But before we bring him in, let's start by examining the murder of Jerry Paul Smith. I want to make sure we're pointing out something pretty critical to the story. While known as Angie on Tinder, in his personal life and throughout court proceedings, the victim was known as Jerry Paul Smith. We will never fully be aware as to what name Jerry would have liked to have been called, but we will be referring to the victim as Jerry because his family does believe to this day that he identifies as a gay man. Okay, Jerry is a 40-year-old gay man living in Blacksburg, Virginia, working as a contractor. And on June 1st, 2021, not long ago, guys, Jerry's family is unable to get in touch with him and request a welfare check from the local police. Upon their arrival, authorities find Jerry's lifeless body in his home. The medical examiner called to the scene reports that Jerry's cause of death is blunt force trauma. It's later found that every bone in his face is broken. Investigators also discover a knife under the mattress in Jerry's apartment. The knife had no stains or signs of use on it, and authorities never ran it for fingerprints. But detectives do come across a lead they decide to follow. At the time, Jerry is active on the dating app Tinder. And what they find out... Okay, are you ready for this? He was using a profile listing him as a woman named Angie. Again, I don't know for sure whether Jerry identified as transgender or exactly why he chose to present himself as a female on the app, but we know this is what he did. So, about two months before Jerry's murder, they came across a Tinder match with a 19-year-old man named Isi Menmen Isi Atute, a student and football player at Virginia Tech University. 
On April 10th, the two meet up at Jerry's apartment for a sexual encounter. And according to EC, Jerry presents himself as Angie, keeping his face hidden with a hoodie. Jerry performs oral sex on EC, and when their encounter ends, Jerry pays EC $50 and the two part ways. Sometime afterwards, though, EC speaks with some friends about this exchange and begins to suspect his Tinder hookup may have been a man. As it turns out, EC isn't the only member of his football team to interact with Angie. In fact, two other players match with Angie prior to EC's fateful meeting. Court records state that at least two other team members visit Angie's apartment soon after matching on Tinder, but felt uncomfortable once they got there and left. Now, it is worth noting that the majority of what we know about this case comes from EC's statements and trial testimony. EC is the only person able to provide an account of what happened between him and Jerry, which has obvious problems. But it is all we kind of have to go on here. Okay, the story continues almost two months later on May 31st, the night of the murder. EC returns to Jerry's apartment under the guise of initiating another sexual encounter. In truth, EC admits he wants to find out if Angie is lying about being a woman. Tracing Jerry's Tinder messages, police learn of this encounter with EC, and this information leads to EC's arrest on the charge of second-degree murder. Okay, kind of cut up here. This all seems to make sense, but this is where it gets really interesting. A year after the murder in April of 2022, Virginia becomes the 12th state to ban gay and transgender panic as a legal defense. And EC's trial begins in May of 2022. So one month after that law has passed. The defense team immediately argues that the gay panic defense ban shouldn't be applicable to this trial as the crimes occurred before the bill was signed. The judge agrees with the defense team and rules that the new legislation is not applicable to the trial and that the defense may be used. All right, now's the perfect time to bring in today's guest. Joining me today is Dr. Karsten Andreessen, a criminal justice scholar, my kind of scholar, and associate professor at St. Edwards University. He has conducted extensive research on the use of the gay panic defense in the United States. His research interests include the gay and trans panic defenses, race, ethnicity, and policing, and the county jail criminal justice system. Karsten, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Now, in this episode, we're talking about gay or trans panic line of defense. This can be obviously a pretty heavy topic and I'm kind of surprised how current this topic really is. It does feel like it should be this old fashioned thing that we talk about. But no, it's kind of definitely leading into present day. It, it, it's hard in terms of emotional, but it's just in terms of kind of sussing out how it works, because I think a lot of people, including myself, are a little curious how they can use this in courts. So before we get into the people versus EC Menman Itute, I have some questions about the history of gay panic defense. OK, no, Karsten, the defense itself originally stems from an idea put forth by psychotherapist Edward Kempf back in 1920. And he claims to have research showing that a large portion of straight identifying men become panicked or enraged. I would say that maybe their ego was a little too bruised when presented with their own homosexual leaning thoughts or ideas. Carson, yes, this is 1967, People versus Rodriguez. And this, this case took place in California. In this case, the defendant claims that he is 
urinating in an alleyway when an elderly man comes up and fondles him. He responds by following the man home, waiting for him to leave his home to take out the trash, beats him to death with a tree branch when he does that, and Rodriguez is charged with first-degree murder. At trial, his attorney argues that the defendant fears for his safety when he realizes that the elderly man is trying to engage with him sexually. Although the jury agrees that the defendant knows what he's doing at the time of the murder, they empathize with the idea of a fear-based reaction and sentence uh, and sentence him on the reduced charge of second-degree murder. This feels, for lack of a better term here, problematic, a little crazy. Um, I, how can he use this as a defense of being panicked? I mean... Couldn't you use a panic defense for any reason to be to kill someone? Doesn't that doesn't that feel wrong? It is definitely wrong. Um, what this stems from the original theory that Dr. Kemp came up with is that actually uh, the people that had at the time it was called homosexual panic, they were not actually dangerous towards other people. These were individuals that uh, I think the old term was like a latent homosexuality, people that were were heavily closeted, that were gay, and suddenly they're put into contact with, you know, if it's a man, a lot of men, like maybe they're in the military, and suddenly right. they have a lot of close contact. So they start to become neurotic, and they start to freak out because um, not only are they attracted to all these men that they just happen to be around, but at that time, the 1920s, actually coming out and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm gay. I hope, I hope it doesn't cause any friction. I hope it doesn't make things awkward. It, homosexuality is considered a pathology. Um, right. The medical establishment doesn't rule that homosexuality, they, they rule in 1973 that it is not a pathology. But up until 1973, it's considered a mental illness and it's also criminalized. So the idea, the idea that um, this, this older man, and it was a man that you know, various news accounts say he was 62, he was 72 or 75. This man that was killed uh, by um, Mr. Rodriguez, he uh, he was uh, that they thought that that defense would work because they thought if they said that he was a dangerous old man trying to pursue this young man for sex, that that you would be able to to um, argue that it was self-defense or that that you were just panicked and afraid. And, and they thought that that could reduce the charge against him. But it didn't work in that case. Okay, so to your point, during this time, the the DSM is, you know, it claims homosexuality is a mental illness. It's sort of this, lack of a better term, this problem that people kind of have to deal with. So this was kind of amping up maybe the defense of Mr. Rodriguez because everyone kind of views this as a negative thing. Homosexuality is what you're saying? A absolutely. Not only is it a mental illness, but at different times, there's a, there's a really excellent book uh, about the early history of people using this as a defense, um, yeah. but people are considered criminals. And, and it's also a felony to, to have a sexual relationship with somebody of the same sex in many states up through the 60s. So it's actually a felony. And people that were uh, out and about, you know, that were gay and, and that were acting on their impulses that might express a romantic interest, those people were seen as like the worst because you're targeting people that already have this weakness. And so that makes you, uh, it's like a drug dealer hanging outside of a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And as a homosexual myself, I guess, how do you prove that someone is homosexual? I mean, during this time, is it just a matter of kind of having these tendencies and like acting on them? Because as we know, you know, kissing another girl or, how, you know, male on male experimenting doesn't necessarily mean that you're homosexual, at least in 2022. So is it just a matter of kind of 
having one tendency and that proves that you're a homosexual in these cases. I guess I don't understand how you can even prove homosexuality. I, I agree with you. It is straight up junior high in the criminal yes. justice system. Yes. I mean, it's like you're gay. I mean, they've known since the 1940s that 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 you don't really have a straight out heterosexual, straight out homosexual, that people fall somewhere in the middle. This defense is just using bigotry to try to accuse somebody. But there are often people that are not gay. And, and by what I mean by not gay, I don't know how you identify somebody's gay or not, but they have not ever had a same sex interaction. They have not sort of ever expressed interest in that. But this defense, all you need to do is to insinuate or to say that somebody made a pass. You know, it could be, you know, experimentation that's never going to happen again. Like you try it and you're not interested. One instance and and you're gay forever. Wow. Okay. So there's so much more I actually need to unpack about that only because my personal experience, I've actually been, my life has been threatened before and it's kind of through one of my ex's mothers and you know she threatened me with a shotgun and said she was going to kill me and i'm just kind of curious i think this is hitting a little bit of my heartstrings here because it's kind of crazy to think that she might have been legally okay to do that to me just because she was so scared that i was dating her daughter but i i kind of want to get into that even more but why is the gay panic defense have such a pull with juries well, there is actually uh, there's there's research on what juries uh, sort of how juries make decisions, how juries make decisions, how juries think about this defense. And some of that research has suggested, you know, that there's either a cognitive bias that unconsciously uh, you may not even be aware of it. You're going to tend to distrust somebody who you perceive to be as gay. They're suddenly suspicious. If you give the person an instance where the victim is gay, an instance where the victim is straight, if there's violence against the straight person, uh a Republican, very conservative juror is going to tend to say, oh, absolutely punish them. We're tough on crime. But suddenly, if that person is gay or if that person is lesbian or trans, then suddenly that same potential juror is going to say, well, wait a second, we can't be tough on crime. And they're going to give uh, the defendant the benefit of the doubt. So just adding that in there as a possibility uh, is going to change that potential juror's mind. I'm literally shaking because I have so many questions for you in general about how this can even come to exist. It almost feels like the perfect way to murder someone is just saying that you were scared that this person was going to be homosexual and, oh, they might have liked sucking your maybe a little bit too much. Like, I I, I am sorry to use all these phrases, but it's a little bit. It's just it's so aggravating. Are, Are we as a society essentially blaming someone for their own attack by allowing this defense to exist? Absolutely. Uh, One of the defenses. So there's like four different sort of themes or defenses you can use under the gay or transpanic defense. One is provocation. And you don't even have to engage sexually. You could just be um, acting. You could just walk up to somebody. You could just walk up to somebody and say, hey, I think you're cute. Would you like to go on a date? And that action will, will be seen as so provocative, so over the top that people that they will argue that, well, um, I'm not saying it's good to kill somebody, but when somebody acts like that towards you, when they act so outrageously, when they dare question your heterosexuality, then of course somebody's going to respond violently. Okay, let's get back to Jerry's case. Okay, so this brings us back to the people of Virginia versus E.C. Men Menatute, May 2022, folks. 
Remember, gay panic defense was outlawed in Virginia a month before this trial, but E.C. Menmen's defense team won the right to use it in his trial. Now, at trial, the defense starts by taking a different route, claiming that E.C.'s actions are self-defense. E.C.'s violence takes place only after he sees Jerry reaching for the weapon under the bed. But the lead defense attorney does place the blame fully on Jerry, calling him a, quote, deceitful and dishonest man who defrauded young men for his own sexual gratification, end quote, remarking, quote, who would be more likely to resort to violence, the man who had the knife or this goofy, gullible kid, end quote. Under cross-examination, E.C. does admit that he never has confirmed knowledge that a weapon is under the bed at the time of the murder, which would argue that he wouldn't know that. I will say all reports suggest E.C. appears genuinely remorseful at trial, telling the court that he isn't made aware of Jerry's death until his arrest and remarking that when he learns the news, quote, I was destroyed. I was upset with myself even because I never intended to harm anyone, end quote. On May 29th, E.C. is found not guilty of second-degree murder and is allowed to go free. Okay, Karsten, in this case, the defense argues that E.C. Menman is is acting in self-defense because he believes Jerry might be reaching for a weapon, but they also use the idea of gay panic as reasoning for his killing. Can you explain how these two defenses are even remotely related? Well, usually what... A skilled defense attorney will do, and I do not agree with this. I'm just saying a skilled defense attorney, they're going to try to raise multiple defenses and sort of each defense that you're able to successfully raise and successfully put to the court makes it much more likely that you're going to be able to get the the crimes against your defendant reduced or even get your defendant acquitted. So they raised provocation. They said there was a sexual assault. And keep in mind, uh, the defendant was 209 pounds and a football player in 19 The victim was 153 pounds and uh, 40 years old. And then also self-defense. Self-defense is going to be the go-to that people use as as there's more tension focused on the gay and transpanic defense. Because self-defense is one of those things uh, that if you are able to sort of raise that defense and successfully build that defense, uh, in this country, uh, self-defense, nobody seems to really question it or to really have a hard time with it. I found that men sort of have carte blanche to engage in really over-the-top violence as long as their their attorney is successfully able to raise a self-defense claim. If they themselves do the talking, it might not work. A defense attorney needs to know how to build it to convince a jury, almost like an, a puzzle or a sort of a, a scenario that the jury is going to accept. They have to raise that in a specific way. And by just saying there's a knife under the bed, it could have happened this way, uh, that's enough to probably for some jurors to raise reasonable doubt. Do you believe that the gay panic defense plays into EC being found not guilty of Jerry's murder here? Absolutely. Could you imagine if the situation was reversed? Let's pretend uh, that the defendant was a woman who was a lesbian and that the victim was a male who pretended that he was a woman. Okay. You know, and so, uh, and then, and then the woman kills the man for pretending to be a woman online. Uh, Absolutely. It would not have gone this way. Um, they, this, uh, I mean, this defense attorney, I, I obviously do. I believe that everybody deserves their day in court too, but there, there's gotta be some sort of limits or there's yeah. gotta be some sort of professional ethics. And, and I will say the Absolutely. age difference, you know, um, if a heterosexual man is 40 years old and has a midlife crisis and starts dating a 19 year old woman, 
he's going to get a medal from a bunch of dudes. They're going to say, well done. If the person is a 40 year old gay man and, and that individual is dating a 19 year old male or is trying to date a 19 year old male, that person is going to be called a sex offender. A groomer. Of course. Yes, absolutely. Of course. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, I want to get to a second story. This one is about Nikki Kuhnhausen, a 17-year-old transgender girl living with her friends in Vancouver, Washington. She's close with her mom, Lisa, loves styling hair and makeup, and hopes to one day become Nicki Minaj's stylist. Nikki has been public about her gender identity since the sixth grade. She's a very strong sense of self and is known for being forthright about who she is, which I love to hear. Like most teenagers in 2019, she loves social media and is constantly posting to her accounts and meeting new people. In the early hours of June 6, 2019, Nikki connects with a man on Snapchat, 25-year-old David Bogdanov. The two spend several hours messaging back and forth on Snapchat before deciding to meet up early the following morning. On the morning of June 6th, Nikki and Lisa chat on the phone before Lisa's shift at work. The two made a point to call each other every morning to check in. This is the last time Lisa will ever speak to her daughter. 
As days go by, Lisa becomes increasingly worried about Nikki. Nikki is very active on social media, and when Lisa realizes her daughter is missing phone calls and hasn't been posting online, she knows something is very wrong here. Five days later on June 10th, Lisa contacts the authorities letting them know that Nikki has vanished. Detectives come to Lisa's home and take her statement. Lisa informs them that she last saw her daughter getting into a car with a Russian man. After several weeks, investigators issue a search warrant to Snapchat and are granted access to Nikki's account on June 27th. Once they have access to her Snapchat messages, it's clear that Nikki plans to meet up with David at around 5 a.m. in the morning of June 6th. Seems very early to me. On June 28th, 22 days after Nikki first goes missing, police begin trying to locate David to question him about his meetup with Nikki. After all, he is the last person whom they can confirm saw her alive. However, David is a difficult man to track down. Police visit his home, try to call him, even send him messages on Snapchat, all with no luck. It seems that David has also vanished here and months go by and it isn't until the very end of September that David finally contacts police, telling them that he's been having problems with his phone and has only just received their messages. Which already to me, to be honest, seems extremely sussy uh, in this day and age. You know, we can, we're talking about present day now. Anyone who has trouble with their phone tend to get that fixed pretty quickly. I can't imagine that months would go by for anyone, but Okay, that doesn't necessarily imply guilt. Detectives ask David to come in, hoping he'll be able to shed some light on what happened to Nikki. On October 2nd, David voluntarily comes to the Vancouver Police Department. David tells investigators that he and Nikki meet at around three in the morning while David is out drinking with his brothers. David spots Nikki sitting alone outside and approaches her, first offering her his jacket, then offering her some vodka out of the bottle he's carrying. Nikki and David exchange Snapchats and part ways, and a few hours later, Nikki snaps David the address where she's staying with some friends. David drives over to pick her up, and Nikki gets into the car with him. After sitting in the car and chatting for a while, David tells police, quote, she told me that she is not a she. I was shocked to find that out and just uncomfortable and really, really disturbed. And I asked her to please get out of the car because this is just really weird for me. She got out of the car and I took off, end quote. David informs police that this is the last time he and Nikki see each other. At the end of his interview with police, David makes a point of letting the detectives know, quote, for me, it's even disturbing when I'm around like a gay person or somebody bi or transsexual or something else. I just got disgusted and I asked her to get out. I wish I could help you more, but I don't know. I'm not the kind of person to, I'm not even a violent person at all, you know, nothing, end quote. Keeping in mind people, he's volunteering this information. At no point during the interview do police insinuate that David has done anything violent to Nikki. This is just information he's volunteering. At this point in this case, everything about David kind of strikes me as very sussy. He goes off the grid literally as soon as Nikki disappears. And when he goes in for questioning, he volunteers his hatred and disgust when he learns that Nikki is trans. Shouldn't this be or is this something that police generally flag that he's just kind of coming in and talking about this disgust because no one even really asked him about it. He's just volunteering it all himself. 
Oh yeah. This case, you know, the, the detective that was involved in that case, it was a missing person detective, uh, detective Jensen. Uh, he seemed to have really go above and beyond trying to investigate this case and get this person. But absolutely during the, you know, from the moment that, that the detective got the Snapchats and got the information. So right after, right after the defendant killed the victim, he goes to the Ukraine for six weeks. Uh, a detective comes in who looks for missing people, and he starts to put together the Snapchat communications between the two. And so he has identified that person. He goes and talks to that person's brothers. And then when that person comes back, he sends that person two Snapchat messages, uh, the defendant. He's the first one. He says, come in, talk to us with the police. You're the last person to see this person who disappeared. That person, the defendant doesn't respond. So the second message he sends, uh, he says, basically, I'm going to go public with this and I'm going to start putting a bunch of information out there with your name in it. And so then the defendant says, I'm coming right in. Why don't they look into him further as a suspect? I mean, why aren't the police kind of following up on David's whereabouts for the past few weeks? It's extremely sussy that he leaves as soon as Nikki goes off the grid. So a missing person is different than discovering a body immediately. But with somebody who's trans, and this this individual is 17, the victim, with, with somebody who's trans, um, you know within the first few days that they disappear, that, that they, they are probably killed because this is America. And when somebody who's trans disappears, they haven't just run away or gone off the grid. They've been killed. And so what they have, but they don't have a body. And so what they have to do is just try to figure out and they don't have a suspect because the suspect left right. that night. Right. So they have to sort of build those breadcrumbs. This detective really seemed to do an exceptional job of, of, keep, of, of following up on this case and seemed to be on to this person. On December 7th, a pedestrian is walking on a trail near Nikki's home when he finds a human skull. Police immediately rush to the scene and find personal belongings scattered around the area a green jacket, underwear, a bandana, and some jewelry. More disturbingly, they also uncover a phone charging cord tied in a circular knot. Colorful pieces of hair extensions are tied up in the knot in a way that appears the person found may be killed by strangulation. Detectives are able to match the skull's dental records and determine that the remains do, in fact, belong to Nikki. On December 17th, police bring David in for another interview. He's still the last known person to interact with Nikki. David sticks to his original story here. He throws Nikki out of his car when she tells him she's transgender and drives immediately to his job in Portland, Oregon. What David doesn't know is that police have had time to access his phone records, which shows that instead of driving to Portland like he claimed, his phone moved in the opposite direction towards Larch Mountain. Interviewers asked David what he was doing on the mountain, and David stopped speaking and asked for a lawyer. At this point, police arrest David on charges of second-degree murder and malicious harassment, which is considered a hate crime in the state of Washington. David's trial begins in August of 2021. During opening statements, the defense immediately claims that David strangled Nikki in self-defense, not because she is transgender. The defense team tells the jury that on the night of her death, Nikki attacks David, possibly with the intention to kill him, and that David kills her to protect his own life. The prosecution counters that there's no evidence whatsoever of Nikki becoming violent, and that according to David's own statements, he is disgusted by her admission that she is transgender. They argue that it's infinitely more likely David himself is spurred to violence when Nikki outs herself, stating that his hatred for gay and trans people outweighs his respect for human life. 
David himself takes the stand and talks about his own religious upbringing, telling the court that he's raised to view transgender, being transgender that is, as a sin. The prosecution questions David about the details of the night of Nikki's death, and he's forced to admit that their quote-unquote chat in the car is actually an intimate encounter. He also admits to the court that at the time, he has a gun located in the center console. David recounts that he and Nikki start making out in the car, and when the situation escalates and starts to become more sexually charged, Nikki lets David know that she is trans. He testifies, quote, I start freaking out saying, you didn't tell me you're a dude, and started yelling at her that she's a disgusting piece of crap. She just jumps up and goes towards the center console towards my gun, and all I can think is, oh my God, I'm going to get shot right now, end quote. And yet, he goes on to state that he tries to grab Nikki's jacket to restrain her, but can't get a good grip. So he reaches for a cell phone charging cable to wrap around her arms and chest. David claims that in the struggle, the cable accidentally slips and wraps around Nikki's neck. As, of course, phone cords are known to do. Of course. I mean, if you're not careful, they're just going to accidentally just go across your neck. I mean, everyone with a phone cord does that. And the prosecution presents the charging cable as evidence to the jury. It is tied in a tight triple knot. The circumference of the size is less than four inches in diameter. And snarled on the knot is a clump of hair. David continues his testimony, telling the jury that after Nikki is dead, he decides against calling the police for fear they won't believe the killing is in self-defense. There are drugs and a gun in his car. He's been out all night and isn't sober, and he feels humiliated. Instead, he decides to drive to Larch Mountain and push Nikki's body down a hill. Then he buys a flight to the Ukraine, claiming at the time he's scared and isn't thinking clearly. The prosecution submits that this is a clear hate crime. David is enraged when he learns he is intimate with someone transgender, kills her, dumps her body, and flees the country. The jury deliberates for nearly three days before finding David guilty of second-degree murder and the hate crime, malicious harassment. He's given the maximum sentence for his crime, 19 and a half years in prison for the murder, plus 12 months for the hate crime charge to be served concurrently. After the trial, the state of Washington passes new legislation called Nikki's Law, which prevents defendants from using their outrage of their victim's sexual orientation or gender identity as a defense for violent crime. Can you shed some light as to why the gay panic defense is unsuccessful in Nikki's case, but actually helpful in the to the defendant in Jerry's case? So I think it goes to the details of these two cases. Now, in this case, even if you were like the most conservative person in the world, or maybe I shouldn't say that because there are some people that are, <laughs> I, I live in a state that's full of hate. But um, but in this case, the victim, uh, Nikki in Washington, I mean, she was 17 years old. Uh, she's five foot eight and 120 pounds. She's, she's petite. And she's also, she came from such... Uh, I don't want to get choked up, but I mean, she had a really hard background. I mean, she was in foster care. Her 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 mom had was a loving mother, but had lots of issues. And I think no matter who you are, you are immediately going to be able to. It's going to be clear to you that this that this woman who's five foot eight, one hundred and twenty pounds, who people love, people show up at the courtroom in pink shirts. That that it is clear that the defendant is a remorseless killer. And the violence is as unambiguously overwrought and over the top. Now, in the case in Virginia, uh, the victim in this case, that the fact that he was 40 years old, they also used race. The victim was white. 
the defendant was African-American. And so they said that the victim was targeting African-American men, young men to have sex with them. And, uh, and so what I think the prosecutor, maybe the prosecutor did this, but you needed to say in this case, the victim might have engaged in some behavior that wasn't responsible, might have engaged in behavior that wasn't respectable and wasn't great. But the, the victim didn't deserve to die for that. Uh, and so they were not able to refute that. Also, I think the defendant, I think both of the defendants did terrible things, but the defendant um, probably had more remorse, was probably more immature. And, and I think probably the defendant actually went back and killed the victim. I think there was something going on with his friends. When his friends know about it, and, and they're probably right. He's more embarrassed. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I'm kind of curious about, because it almost seems in the difference of these two cases that, again, both defendants did something wrong, so I'm not saying anything. But, like, David kind of did it almost suddenly, you know, realized what was happening and, and did it. But in but in uh, EC's case, he goes back and follows the guy, which feels like it's more, that doesn't really feel like there's a panic. It mostly feels like it's it's planned. And that's what I don't really understand because panic would be something that happens in the heat of the moment. You know, even just in heterosexual couples, sometimes uh, jealous rage kills a lot of people, you know, like that's people's response, not all people, thank God, but some people it's, it's, this, it's this heat of the moment. I'm not thinking this is the first thing that happens. But with Easy, he did think about it. He did go back. He did have time. He kind of had that 60-second Twitter delay, you know, to see if he wanted to send the message. And he did it anyway. And then it worked in his case. I just find it ironic that it almost, it has nothing really to do with panic and everything to do with embarrassment later on. Nothing about his case seems to be panicky to me. Oh, I mean, his his case, I mean, I believe it was 51 days, 51 days. And he he was accompanied by two players. So this whole thing was horrific, breaking every bone in his face, knocking every tooth out of his mouth. That's not panic. That's that's absolutely deliberate. This seems to me before we wrap up here, like one of the biggest loopholes for men to use as a defense in the court of law. Would you consider it a loophole? Because that's what it seems like to me. Absolutely. It's a loophole. I mean, it is it's it's unbelievable. I mean, I I sort of have a chapter that I'm working on and I refer to this right now where we are right now in the gay and transpanic defense as a renaissance of hate. I mean, you know, we have a bunch of heterosexual men who are threatened by a, a world that's becoming more diverse, by a world in which women have more power. When I originally did this research, I thought we were ebbing this was going away and now as i do this research i just feel i mean it just feels um it feels like a death march because it's it's continuing and it's it's gonna amp up um so it's only gonna get worse it's only gonna get worse even though we're i feel like the society itself is becoming more accepting and it's obviously it's better for the gay community now than it was 30 years ago than it was 50 years ago but i just see these laws kind of reminding me how much more we really have to go with this community and it's still going to be a constant fight because this is just, I mean, I'm appalled that this could actually be a defense still in this day. And it's still allowed in 50% of the fucking country. I mean, even, even for me, who's an out homosexual cisgender woman being threatened with my life with oh yeah this girl and her mother, like threatening, putting a shotgun down my throat. Like I can't even imagine the trans issue in that and all the complication that happens there. Like, 
to think that she could have gotten off in theory, even though this doesn't happen with women in, in courts of law as much, but like to think that she could have gotten off by killing me because she was just panic for her daughter is like actually appalling. Karsten, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today about my killer questions around this case. I think I'm unfortunately leaving a lot more frustrated than when I started, but that is that is not due to you. That is just due to the criminal justice system and the cases surrounding this. And I really appreciate shedding a lot of light on this. Thank you. We will continue to keep an eye on any developments with these laws, how they evolve, what states are enacting them uh, as, the, as this kind of goes forward. And for you guys listening to the show, what are your killer questions for this case? Are you as frustrated as I am? You can message me on social media at Carpe Darren. To view the current laws in your state on this matter, head to lgbtqbar.org and refer to their Panic Defense Legislation interactive map. I'm Darren Carp. Thanks for listening to Killer Questions. For even more true crime from ID, head to Discovery Plus. Go to discoveryplus.com slash killer questions to start your seven-day free trial today. That's discoveryplus.com slash killer questions. Terms apply. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.